If you're watching the Three Stooges and Larry pulls out a sledgehammer and smashes Moe in the head with it, you laugh. If you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Leatherface pulls out a sledgehammer and smashes a co-ed over the head with it and blood spatters into the camera, you scream. But you have fundamentally been watching the same scene. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Joe Hill isn't just the best-selling author of Heart Shaped Box, Nosferatu, Lock and Key, and The Fireman. Like his father, Stephen King, he is an omnivorous consumer of popular culture who is terrifically funny and deeply serious about horror. This in-depth interview was conducted by History of Horror showrunner Kurt Zienga. I did my homework for this, for the last month and a half, I've watched two horror films a week, one rewatch, and then one that was new to me. And the one that might be the most fun to talk about is Contagion. It was made 10 years before COVID, and it got everything right. It was so prophetic. It was so dead on. It didn't miss a single trick. Everything that it imagined happening happened, with only a few tiny exceptions from the origins of the virus, to how it would spread, to how our government apparatus would attempt to respond. I think that the movie assumes more competency at the governmental level than we actually got in the first year of COVID. Although it also shows state and town officials saying, what will this do to business? What will this do to our bottom line? It anticipated a lot of the crazy conspiracy theories. You've got Jude Law selling forsythia as a miracle cure for the virus, for the explosive virus in, in contagion. One thing that was wrong, but it's an understandable error, it does show people panicking in the supermarket, preparing to beat each other to death over the last can of beans. And I remember the day that COVID really finally sunk in as a national threat. And I went to the supermarket to get a couple of items and wound up shopping for a month. And the place was packed, but everyone was very good humored and very polite and very cooperative. And so it is in the nature of horror films to sometimes paint humanity a little worse 
than to imagine scenarios where we're a little more prone to giving into our primal urges than we actually do. On the other hand, the virus in the Soderbergh film kills one out of four people that gets it, which is a lot more dangerous than COVID. And so I think it's a lot harder to say how we might have responded if the virus had been that much more lethal. There's something else about contagion I want to mention. Director Steven Soderbergh has said on a few occasions that he doesn't really think films matter that much anymore. And I do think that that's an admirable bit of humility, but he's clearly wrong about how much films matter. And contagion is the proof. The head of UK Health, a fellow named Harper, saw contagion not long before COVID hit. And he was asked to buy about 35 million doses of vaccine for the government and instead tripled the order completely on his own initiative because he had seen contagion and thought, mm, this could get really bad. We better err on the side of caution. And it turned out that that was a really prescient move of his. So there's a concrete example of how much films still can matter. No doubt that contagion is a horror film, but it's so artfully done it's so intelligent, so well-written. It has such an enormous star cast that I think people who dislike horror try to steal it and say, oh, it's actually a drama. It's a horror film. And the proof is when they peel off Gwyneth Paltrow's face, take a bone saw to her cranium, open up the top of her skull and look inside and there's nothing but goop in there. Gwyneth Paltrow is quite a history of head trauma in films. It's true. It's true. She's lost her head in a couple of pictures now. What film did Trump base his response on? Not to get terribly political, but the previous administration's uh, response to the COVID crisis reminds me of the opening scenes of Dawn of the Dead when there's panic in the TV booth and everyone is running for cover and looking to save their own ass. And you can see that there's no one in charge and the flesh-hungry ghouls are battering at the door. Some people would say that the COVID crisis proves that we would not survive the zombie apocalypse because there would be a whole swath of America that says the zombie plague is fake news, that you can treat zombie bites with forsythia or hydrochloroquine, that the contagion is overrated, that the zombies are actually our friends, that many people recover from being zombies. Yeah, it's killing the weak and apparently they deserve to die because they're weak. That's right, that's right. Let's talk about psychics. Uh, we'll start with scanners, which I believe is a favorite of yours. Blows my mind every time I see it. I will miss no obvious jokes. So Scanners was filmed in Canada in the 1970s. It's an early Cronenberg film. Much of it, especially the earlier stuff, was either shot in abandoned warehouses or Toronto has this massive network of underground shopping malls that look like the 1970s idea of the 21st century. And Dick Smith did some fabulous makeup gross out effects for the picture. There is a legendary exploding head, which might be sort of the pinnacle of gross out makeup effects prior to John Carpenter's The Thing. There is an incredible psychic 
battle at the end of the picture, which involves people being incinerated alive by way of spontaneous combustion and painting a room with blood. Tremendously vivid stuff. But I actually think the atmosphere of the picture is the scariest thing about it. The hero is so good-looking, there is an aspect of the uncanny valley about his features and his gaze, which makes it that much easier to believe that he's never really lived among other humans and that he is tormented by some kind of psychic gift. It's there in the glassiness of his eyes and the chilly, expressionless nature of his face. I once heard someone describe Texas Chainsaw Massacre by saying that before Saw, before Chainsaw, there had been movies about psychopaths, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the first horror film that seemed like it had been directed by a psychopath. And you could say something similar about Scanners, that there had been movies about alienated people with disturbed psychologies um, who had the power to peer into other souls before Scanners. But Scanners almost feels like it was directed by an alien intelligence, someone not quite comfortable with who we are, with how we think, with how we feel. Um, it holds all of humanity at a distance, and that gets to you. It gets to you like a damp chill in the air, and eventually by the end of the picture you can feel it down in your bones. I've heard that Cronenberg was inspired by his own overheated brain, so it was so filled with thoughts that he thought it would explode. I think a lot of the best directors are writers first, or have that aspect of their psychology. And I know that Scanners was written on the fly, that they had money from the Canadian government, but they had to spend it right away or they wouldn't get to make their picture. And it's kind of staggering how well engineered that picture is how well-drawn the characters are from Patrick McGowan, psychic researcher and chemist, to Michael Ironside's terrifying sociopath and the way he clashes with the heroes. It's all masterfully engineered. All I can say is kids, don't try this at home. Uh, that's no way to make a picture. And if you're not a genius on the scale of David Cronenberg, you shouldn't attempt it. I also think it ought to be added that this is a picture full of chilly, unfeeling, remote psychics. And among all of them, there is a serial killer and sociopath played by Michael Ironside, who is the most identifiably human of all of them. Because at least he feels things like resentment, rage, victory. He has recognizable animal urges. It's strange that the most horrible character in the movie should be the one that maybe we identify with the most. That's interesting because the film has been criticized for not being heavy on character development and the lead is a cipher. Are these critics missing the point? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, the idea that someone with those gifts would no longer really be human at all is the underlying message of Scanners and in some ways is also kind of an on-running, ongoing theme with Cronenberg himself, who seems to be interested in what might be next for humanity. What will our new flesh look like? And you can see this thread running through all his work. Even in Rabbit and Shivers, it's about forms of mutation and evolution. One of Cronenberg's primary themes is the idea that evolution is an adaptation are happening right now and that it's grotesque and wet and red and unstoppable and that when humans finish evolving, well, humans will never finish evolving, but whatever they evolve into next won't be recognizable as human at all. And that is a concept that is delivered scene after scene throughout Scanners.
Cronenberg often has scenes where audiences watch something grotesque or disturbing happening on a stage. What do you make of that? There is a scene where the heroic psychic, if you want to call him heroic, is strapped down to a table in front of an audience that's all talking about him. And to me, this is, you know, a classic horror movie scenario, you know, which always plays to those primal basic fears. It is very close to that nightmare that everyone has where they find they have to deliver a big presentation in front of an audience and only to realize that they're naked. I wrote a book called Horns, which explored some of the same notions. I also think we're attracted, enticed by the idea that we could be so much more powerful, so much more godlike, if only we could read other people's minds. But in fact, not being able to shut out other people's thoughts sounds pretty existential, sounds pretty terrifying, because half of the stuff that goes through our heads half of the time shouldn't be shared with anyone because it's so wretched and grotesque and and shocks even the person thinking it. But for some reason, we're wired to think those thoughts, whether we like them or not. I'm fascinated by the amount of research going into hooking brains up to computers so we can remotely operate machinery by thought. Did no one see Forbidden Planet? (laughs) Yeah, you want to be careful what you let out of the box. Filming psychic action, I think, is an interesting problem. It's probably no surprise that it takes directors of the level of Brian De Palma and David Cronenberg to pull it off. David Cronenberg solved the problem of showing what it would be like to have psychic powers, which is internal, but he managed to externalize it not once, but several times throughout his movies. He did it very powerfully and memorably in The Dead Zone, which is one of my absolute favorite Cronenberg pictures, but is also arguably the least Cronenberg of any Cronenberg picture because Johnny Smith, the protagonist, unforgettably played by Christopher Walken, is someone we so love, so identify with, and so want to see succeed and have happiness. He's never going to get it, not in a Cronenberg film. But there is a warmth to that picture, even though, like so many other Cronenberg pictures, it was filmed in the frosty north of Canada. But there is a warmth and a soul to that picture, which makes us feel at least a little bit hopeful about the human condition. Not always a given with a Cronenberg flick. But Cronenberg solved the problem of how do you show this external event, the act of seeing the future or reading someone's mind? How do you visualize that? And he did that by flinging Christopher Walken right into his own visions. So when a house is burning a few minutes in the future, Johnny Smith is right there in the bed, in the nursery, watching the fish tank boil and explode and seeing the curtains fall and burning shreds. It was a visual solution to a naughty intellectual problem and gave that film a real jolt. I should add, The Dead Zone was a book by my dad and is also my favorite of my dad's books um, and is probably the only book I have ever read more than 20 times. Most of what I learned about writing, most of what I know about writing, I learned from reading The Dead Zone. I never would have been able to write my second novel, Horns, if The Dead Zone hadn't suggested to me how that might be tackled. Looking at that novel critically, what are its strengths? Like, What makes it work so well? 
and what was the film able to retain? Because that film follows your dad's book as well as anyone can within the time constraints of a film. And it's a pretty episodic narrative. It's not just point A to B. Johnny goes through several journeys. Yeah. I don't think that when people think of Stephen King, they necessarily think of warmth. But I actually think the defining trait of the book is its warmth towards its main character and his love, Sarah, and Johnny's family and the doctors who work with him, Doc Wiesiak, who is, you know, a really memorable character from the picture. The movie and the book are both tragic and romantic and show a man who has lost his shot at most of what he hoped for. He's lost five years of his life. He's lost the woman he loved. He's lost his career. To a degree, he's lost his mobility because the accident he suffers leaves him partially crippled. Nevertheless, he picks up the shattered fragments of his life and begins to fit them back together. And he goes on and tries to help people and to be a teacher and to be a friend. And uh, I think it's impossible not to be a little moved by that, by Johnny Smith's quiet display of strength, decency, kindness, and morality. It's little acts of, of decency that echo throughout the book and lead to his final actions, which are suspenseful and terrifying and thrilling and important and carry terrific moral weight. So I think that Cronenberg is the reason the film is scary and that my, my dad, my dad's characters, is the reason that the film has heart, has warmth. And the two of them together were an absolutely electrifying combination. It's certainly one of the best adaptations. The movie was controversial because some argued it condoned the assassination of political figures. In the book, when Johnny Smith is preparing to assassinate Greg Stilson, because he's seen that Greg Stilson will end the world, he approaches it with a terrific sense of moral dread because he believes, rightly, that any act of violence will sow more dragon's teeth that any act of violence will be returned triple fold further on down the timeline. But when push comes to shove, Johnny does not pull the trigger, nor does he need to, suggesting that evil finds a way of devouring itself. And you see that in the movie and you see that in the book as well. And that is something I actually do happen to believe in real life. We all long for justice and it's important to search for it and to try for it in the real world. Nevertheless, most really evil people have a self-destruct button built in, and sooner or later they put their fist down on it without realizing what they've done. Of course, wicked people can do a lot of damage first, but still, I do think that evil tends to be a snake devouring its own tail. Sooner or later it goes slurp, and there's nothing left. Let's talk a little about Dr. Sleep, another one of your dad's books. My story about Dr. Sleep is my dad's sequel to The Shining, and he was writing it at the same time I was writing a novel called Nosferatu, and NOS4A2, which later became a TV show on AMC starring Zachary Quinto. And Nosferatu is about a kind of soul vampire, a vampire that feeds off the life force of children. And when I was writing the book, and I got talking to my dad and discovered that the bad guys in his book, Dr. Sleep, were also soul vampires that feed off the life force of others. And I had this moment of thinking, oh my God, we're writing the same book. 
So then when you run into a situation like that, you have to figure out how to handle it. There's really only two possible strategiums. You can run away from the similarities and pretend they're not there and hope no one notices. Or you can run towards them and embrace them and underline them. And I actually think that second option is more fun and more creatively interesting. And so as a result, my dad stuck my bad guy, Charlie Manx, into Dr. Sleep. Charlie Manx makes a brief cameo in that book. And I stuck his bad guys, the true knot, into Nosferatu. They have a, a brief curtain call themselves. But I did it without having actually read the book. I just had his description of what the true knot was like. You know, we hatched this plan to have the two books cross over lightly. At some point, I will reread The Shining and then read Dr. Sleep and then rewatch the Kubrick and then watch Mike Flanagan's uh, sequel. And I'm looking forward to, you know, all of it. That should be a lot of fun. You got to watch the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. It's the rare movie that's better at three hours than two and a half hours. Yeah, no, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing it. And I think that Mike Flanagan is probably the best thing to happen to the genre in, you know, since, I don't know, maybe Clive Barker. His films are so humanistic, moving and beautiful, but also really fucking scary. He had a really difficult problem trying to bring Kubrick's imagery into King's novel. I know that he did sort of a, a neat trick of making the movie Dr. Sleep a sequel to both the Kubrick picture and my dad's novel, which is not easy to do since the Kubrick film and the Stephen King novel ultimately come to very different conclusions and are really fundamentally different stories. The Kubrick Shining is this extremely chilly, unfriendly picture. I don't know that you're ever really allowed to love those characters in the film, and I don't like that myself. I I don't want to root for the bad guy. You know, I don't want to be on the side of the psychotic. It's one of the reasons the slasher films of the 1980s were problematic because Friday the 13th picture always pitted Jason against, you know, a handful of stereotypical teenagers, each of which is only allowed one character trait. So you get the stoner, you get the cheerleader, you get the jock. The person who has the most personality, character, strength of character, vision is always the serial killer in those movies. And uh, I don't really, I don't really want to feel that way when I watch a horror film. I don't want to really feel like, yay, let's root for someone else to get killed. talk a little about Lee Wanell's 2020 adaptation of The Invisible Man. I thought that was a very powerful film. The 2020 Invisible Man is the best version of Invisible Man, and I'm including the H.G. Wells novel that inspired the whole concept. It's an intensely terrifying picture. Elizabeth Moss delivers a performance that would easily win an Oscar if it was in a film that was in any other genre but horror fiction. I think that horror gets a little bit of a bum rap when it comes to be award season, but it is an absolute masterclass in acting, and the film is relentlessly terrifying. 
it had the misfortune to be released just as COVID was breaking big in the U.S. and everyone stopped going to movie theaters. I'm convinced it could have been a Silence of the Lambs level smash if it had just been released in any other time in history. Invisible Man takes this idea of invisibility and projects it into a story which is about stalking and about control, real life terrors of surveillance that I think everyone faces, but women especially. Lots of women have had the experience of having the unpleasant ex who is stalking them on Facebook and following them on Twitter, getting having a few drinks and calling the apartment in the middle of the night. That can be really dreadful, and the movie takes that three steps further into someone who can wear this kind of armor that makes him invisible to the eye. And he really is standing right behind his victim, Elizabeth Moss, most of the picture, and using the power of that invisibility to drive her friends away and torment her. When she walks away from her computer for a moment, he can jump onto it and write evil emails to her sister without being seen, without needing to sign in because she's already signed in. He can set a fire in the kitchen and make it look like her fault because he was able to turn the burners up when she walked away for a moment. If she leans in to give a loved one a hug, he can punch that loved one. And because he can't be seen, it looks like Elizabeth Moss hit someone. So that's really, really frightening stuff. You know, it was easily the best horror film of 2020 and one of the best performances. And no single performer has better captured the idea that seeing something unnatural would look like madness to everyone else than Elizabeth Moss in Invisible Man. She's hearing someone sensing someone stalking her. She's finding knives in odd places, someone setting fires, someone is tormenting her friends, and she believes it's her boyfriend who is apparently dead by suicide, but she can't convince anyone else of that. And when she tries to talk to, for example, her sister, she leans across the table in a restaurant and she says in a very quiet voice, he's here with us now. He's watching us. We have to be very careful. He's paying attention to everything I say. And if we don't do what he wants, he'll hurt you. And it sounds like she's talking about someone who exists only inside her own head. You know, those are the moments of peak terror in Invisible Man. It's definitely next level stalking. Elizabeth Moss brings us through this whole parade of emotions so convincingly from helplessness, panic, paranoia, to resolve, resilience, a belief that she is feeling what she's feeling and seeing what she's seeing, a refusal to be gaslighted. And I just think that that's such a powerful character arc to follow over the course of a film and something a lot of people need right now, because a lot of us feel over the last couple years sort of gaslit and paranoid, surveilled, watched. So Invisible Man provides this tremendous feeling of catharsis about all those sensations. The other thing that I think needs to be said about Invisible Man is that the suit of armor that turns the antagonist invisible is fucking scary. It is a great presentation of the Invisible Man's evil powers. It's sort of like what the Predator did in Predator, but plus, times 10. I just loved that armor. And when Elizabeth Moss begins to fight back and begins to nail the Invisible Man and the armor begins to flicker into view, 
in little bursts. It's like looking at this terrifying gorgon. It's this monstrosity um, where it's almost like, no, go back to being invisible now. I liked it better when I couldn't see you. Speaking of mad scientists, it's interesting how the story Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has faded a little bit in popular culture, but it's part of the DNA of so many stories now. Did you get a chance to reread the book or phone up on any of the adaptations? Not so much, although what's funny is I am in the process of boning up for it because I have to do an introduction for an annotated Jekyll and Hyde. I haven't really done my homework there. I will say, generally, it's interesting how much in the age of cinema, the Jekyll and Hyde story seems to tap into queasiness around some unease, uncertainty, people's anxieties around sexual expression. And maybe that was there in the book to a degree. There was some stuff in the book, some coded stuff about homosexuality in Victorian England. The various film versions of Jekyll and Hyde have tapped into this notion that there is a side to even the most decent men that is grotesque, barbaric, kind of primally sexual and destructive. And so I think there is this fear being explored in the various versions of Jekyll and Hyde of some kind of unhinged sexuality, even though sexuality is not always directly addressed in the films, but it's just kind of there simmering. The book is definitely coded. I interviewed David Skull a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying Victorian audiences would have read the first part of the book and thought it was clear that Mr. Hyde was Dr. Jekyll's rough trade. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, but yes. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think it reaches its peak of discomfort in the 1931 version where Hyde is just flat out sexually abusive. I think that Jekyll and Hyde explores the notion that personal identity is more frangible maybe than we credit it for, that your personality in some ways is an active choice. And under the right circumstances, people might casually choose to become something monstrous and irredeemable. I don't know if that's true, but I, I do think that there is, I, I mean, I actually think as a writer that character tends to be fairly consistent. But I think there is, you know, a whole genre of stories about not really knowing who your loved one is inside. And that Jekyll and Hyde is sort of the atom that was split, that created that explosion of stories, which are oftentimes about a woman discovering the truth about her husband's secret identity, which again, could be a metaphor for an affair. There's any of a number of unsavory qualities that that might suggest that could be uncovered by someone that would change everything about how you feel about them. And so that's what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is tapping into. Well, the other element that David Skull brought up, I think that's worth considering, is the class element of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And the idea was that a decent upper-class Victorian gentleman could be corrupted by the savage passions of the working class. Ha! Huh. Interesting. I mean, I do think that the original novel acknowledges the beneath upper-class Victorian society. There were a lot of men who had a disturbing nighttime life that just went completely undiscussed. And maybe that was one of the reasons why Stevenson's wife abhorred the novel and, and was so against it that he burned it in the fireplace and then rewrote it from scratch. 
Wow. You didn't know that? Did not know that. Yeah, the original version of Jekyll and Hyde was written in the course of a weekend. And when Stevenson's wife read it, she was so appalled. She said, you can never publish this. And he immediately took the manuscript without hesitating and threw it into the hearth. And so that we'll never know what, what was in the first version of Jekyll and Hyde. But the story wouldn't leave him alone. So later he circled back and wrote it from scratch again. He convinced her they could remodel the bathroom with the money. <laughs> the money made. I think a lot of horror is about the fragile nature of brain states. Like one good whack in the head and your personality can change and your perception of reality. And in some ways, I think that's what Altered States is getting at. I saw Altered States years ago, William Hurt in the hermetically sealed bathtub. And I found the picture very disorientating. Less like horror, more like an attempt to show how something like LSD might unhinge the mind, even though no one takes LSD in the picture. But I think it was an attempt to kind of show that the people around you help create your sense of what's real and what's true. And if you take all that away, if you isolate someone, if you sink them in lukewarm water, return them to the embryo, they can know no more of the world than a fetus. And suddenly reality becomes as liquid as the fluid surrounding them. And it is true that, you know, it is true, I think, that humans understand on some basic level that who we are and our connection to reality is very tenuous, a fragile thing, easily destroyed. Just the influence of too much Facebook will remove you from reality. It will become Facebook is like the tub that William Hurt gets sealed in and it cuts you off from reality. It shuts out the light. It shuts out other voices. And before you know it, you believe your political opponents are drinking the blood of children um, in the basement of a pizza parlor somewhere. For sure, Altered States is a movie that taps into our terror of losing our sense of what's true and what's not. Let's talk about Dr. Frankenstein. Do you prefer Colin Clive in the Universal Classics or Peter Cushing's much more sinister doctor in the Hammer films? For me, the masterpiece is the James Whale, Bride of Frankenstein. And I think a lot of people who really love horror and watch a lot of horror movies sooner or later come around to admitting the genius of that picture. But it's not a horror film, really. It's hard to describe exactly what it is. It's very campy. It has some stuff which is cosmically hilarious, like the little people inside of jars that one mad scientist is wandering around with. So I have this idea that horror and comedy basically are the same. They basically function the same way. And the example I give is if you're watching The Three Stooges and Larry pulls out a sledgehammer and smashes Mo in the head with it, you laugh. If you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Leatherface pulls out a sledgehammer and smashes a co-ed over the head with it and blood spatters into the camera, you scream. But you have fundamentally been watching the same scene. And I think that James Whale understood how close horror was to comedy. 
both comedy and horror attempt to reach past the forebrain to the reptile brain and jerk a reaction out of you. And that way, Bride of Frankenstein anticipates so much of the surreal, often gross, but utterly hilarious genre-bending pictures like Evil Dead 2, where you feel what you're watching is theoretically horror, but actually plays more like slapstick. So I do think that Bride of Frankenstein plays as a horror film, also as a satire of horror films, and also as this sort of surreal comic statement about attraction and repulsion. Whale may be the first filmmaker who made a sequel that can be read as a statement about his reluctance to make a sequel. Well, the other thing is, what is Bride of Frankenstein really about? It's about trying to see if you can create love out of a test tube. Can science engineer love? So in that way, Victor Frankenstein was essentially serving the same role that Match.com serves nowadays. And I would say the bride's first date with the monster goes about as well as most Match.com dates. Have you seen Ex Machina? I love Ex Machina. It is really one of my favorite pictures of the last 10 years. Alex Garland's Ex Machina is a sci-fi horror retelling of Bluebeard's Castle with Dom Hall Gleason as Bluebeard's latest bride, in a sense. Dom Hall Gleason comes to a remote jungle mansion to help a Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg-like tech bro with research into artificial intelligence. And he meets, to all appearances, a uh, beautiful young woman who has been cybernetically engineered. And gradually, Dom, the Dom Hall Gleason character begins to fall in love with her and to care about her. And then discovers that she is only the latest iteration of any of a number of cyborg women that this tech bro has engineered for his cruel amusement. And like Bluebeard's wives, their shattered remnants have been stuffed away in dark back closets, hidden from view. And like Bluebeard's victims, they cry out for revenge. It's a really twisty, suspenseful, unsettling take on a myth that must be several centuries old now and has never seemed more potent or more terrifying. It's also a terrifying science fiction horror film that has an amazing dance break in the middle of it. The dance break in Ex Machina is probably my favorite 45 seconds of film so far in the 21st century. The Dom Hall Gleason character says to Oscar Isaacs, you tore up her picture. And Oscar Isaac replies, I'm about to tear up a fucking rug. I do think that Ex Machina also does capture our fear, our justifiable fear that the tech bros who rule modern capitalism know too much about us, have us under surveillance, and are entirely too powerful beyond the reach of law or conventional morality. And that's scary. And who can say, you know, at this point in the 21st century, that uncontained, unregulated technological powers haven't done tremendous damage to the social fabric? I mean, not to get real political, but there are all these people who have died in Myanmar because of Facebook. There are actual lives on the line, and there doesn't seem to be any way to put that technological jack-in-the-box away. 
Oscar Isaac's character also has his own completely sheltered island where he can do whatever he wants, which reminds me of Jeffrey Epstein. Alex Garland, who wrote it, he also wrote The Beach. He's a brilliant writer, and I love what he's doing in film, and I hope he will hurry back to novels because we need more Alex Garland novels. But he's tapping into so many archetypes and myths in Ex Machina. When I look at Ex Machina, I see shades of Bluebeard's Castle. I see shades of The Island of Dr. Moreau. I see shades of Frankenstein. That's all there and is exquisitely used and examined, which is proof that there's always power in old stories if you can find the right way to tap into it. A lot of mad scientist narratives seem to be getting at the idea of what is human and is that something that we can create? I wonder if there aren't more and more horror stories about the dangers of having created something that can think for itself and judge us, weigh us on their own personal, moral scale. I wonder if the reason we have this fear, this building fear that's being examined again and again in a film about creating a new intelligence isn't because we're actually getting pretty close. Because, you know, we are addressing a very concrete fear of something that probably will happen. And what will that be like when we create something that can see for itself all our flaws, you know, all the ways we've lied to ourselves and all our moral compromises? We have to hope that if we do create some kind of powerful artificial intelligence, that it will be more forgiving than we are. All of this gives me some ideas about how to structure these episodes. There is some kind of circle going from the psychic powers explored in scanners all the way around to the created intelligence in Ex Machina, because ultimately these stories which seem so very different on the surface are both about the terrors of something coming after humanity, of humanity developing something new that's no longer human the fear of being supplanted as sort of the alpha creature of planet Earth. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix and Evelyn Brochu as Delphine. Season two picks up where season one left off, with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, will be available wherever you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe so you won't miss when new episodes drop. Or visit realm.fm for more information. So I think Color Out of Space is one of the rare successful film adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft. 
it's hard to do Lovecraft. His vision of a cosmic horror that's so much bigger than humanity is very hard to capture on screen. Richard Stanley does probably a better job of capturing big cosmic horror than almost anyone before him, and he does it with this extreme neon color palette where the whole world is kind of washed in lurid color. Color itself becomes something that horrifies us and sickens us, strangely, both, both metaphorically and literally in that film. The picture features a classically unhinged performance by Nick Cage, you know, the Jekyll and Hyde of modern actors. He is never anything less than unforgettable. His performance is a stunner, but in and around that performance is a story about a family's shared sense of reality being smashed into tinier and tinier fragments by an environmental poison that has leaked into their well water. And by late in the picture, the llamas out in the garage have all become this one slimy, ten-headed, grotesque llama creature. The teen girl is slicing pentagrams into her flesh. The little boy in the family has a close friendship with this uh, multicolored jelly living in the bottom of the well. And Tommy Chong is out in the woods where he's become the corpse of a medicine man. And his last dying thoughts are bling back very slowly on his uh, eight track. It's a really icky picture. That's another one that taps into basic fears, which is that there's, you know, and it's a very modern fear, which is there's stuff in our water that we can't see that might be changing us at a cellular level, breaking us down both physically and psychologically, deforming us inside and out. And so it is a movie about the terror of environmental catastrophe and what that will do to humans, how that will leave us off. What price will we have to pay for drinking the water? Let's talk a little about 12 Monkeys. It uses the outbreak of a pandemic virus to look at time and the human condition. 12 Monkeys is a Terry Gillum film. It's a hell of a piece. It really holds up. It moves with a disorientating acceleration, and it features a number of really disturbing, jarring performances from people like Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, who usually play it pretty straight. David Morse has an unforgettable small role. 12 Monkeys is the picture of a prisoner in a virus-wrecked future, and this prisoner is able to flip back in time to try to gather information on the virus that wiped out nine-tenths of humanity. For a movie on a grim subject, it's really funny and really nuts, but you wouldn't expect anything else from Terry Gillum. It essentially says that the course of destiny is fixed, and so we are all prisoners of fate, and nothing can change that. Yeah, I do think that 12 Monkeys does seem to be making the argument at first that's made in the story in Appointment Samara, where death sees a working fella in Cairo, and the working fella sees him and the guy is like, I, you know, asks his boss, I got to get out of here. You know, death saw me today. I got to go somewhere. And the boss says, go, go, go. So the guy buys a ticket to Samara and, you know, gets out of Cairo. And then later that evening, the employer runs into death himself and is angry because death so scared his employee. Death says he wasn't the only one who was startled. I was surprised to see him, too. I had no idea what he was doing in Cairo. 
I have an appointment with him later this evening in Samara. And that does seem to be somewhat the point of 12 Monkeys. That said, at the risk of dropping a spoiler, I'm pretty sure the last few seconds suggest that the evil outcome where most of humanity will be wiped out is actually going to be averted. We have seen a woman in the future who is working with Bruce Willis to gather information on the past. And in the last frames of the picture, David Morse, who has vials of this virus and is going to use it to wipe out humanity, gets onto an airplane and sits down next to a woman. And it is that woman from the future. And he asks her what she does for a living. And she says, I'm in insurance, which makes me think that he's never going to arrive where he's going. And that maybe Bruce Willis saved us after all, which is kind of what Bruce Willis does. Yeah, but at the same time, David Morse's character uncorked the vial of highly infectious virus and waved it under the nose of the airport security guys. So true. I also want to just throw something out there, random piece of horror movie trivia. I'm pretty sure that 12 Monkeys was inspired by a famous short story by the writer James Tiptree Jr., who was actually a pen name for Alice Sheldon, favorite writer of mine, a sort of inspirational figure for me. I, I love to work. And she wrote a story called The Last Flight of Dr. Ain about a researcher who has a suitcase full of plague and is flying all across the world to uncork his vials of virus and wipe us out to protect the environment, which is also essentially so the plot of The Last Flight of Dr. Ain is actually where 12 Monkeys seems to be ending. Tiptree's such a great writer. My favorite story of hers is The Man Who Walked Home. Oh, wow. The Man Who Walked Home is a great one. So upsetting, like so many of her stories, so deeply upsetting. That's another story about someone falling through time, too. I like happy, cheerful stories like that. <laughs> it's not an accident you're directing uh, Eli Roth's History of Horror. Apocalyptic horror. I know you're a big fan of Richard Matheson, and a lot of apocalyptic stories have their roots in Matheson's novel, I Am Legend. Certainly all the stories of the zombie apocalypse have their roots in I Am Legend. Night of the Living Dead, in some ways, was an attempt to tell the story of I Am Legend in a way where none of the people creating it would get sued. So it like takes two steps to the left from I Am Legend and then goes from there. Instead of vampires, you have zombies. Instead of taking place over the course of a year, it takes place over a night. But ultimately, it is about a vestige of humanity trying to hold off the walking dead. And those two stories, I Am Legend and Night of the Living Dead, which was never copyrighted, crucially, was never copyrighted. Those two stories uncorked decades of movies about the flesh-munching ghouls that we've come to know and love. At the core, these stories all seem to be about survival under extremely perilous conditions. Why does that appeal to some people? All horror is basically adaptive. There's been some writing to this effect as well. We watch horror to project ourselves into terrifying scenarios, to safely project ourselves into terrifying scenarios, and to imagine how we would respond if we were trapped in the dark with our back against the wall. And it's hard to imagine why anyone would want to do that, but 
we have evolved to enjoy the practice, to enjoy entering the safe playground of the imagination and exploring dreadful scenarios. And it's all a form of rehearsal for the real troubling, unsettling eventualities that many people face in many lifetimes. You will never have to fight off a vampire. They don't exist. But lots of people will face debilitating, life-threatening illness. It's part of being human. And they will see their energies draining away, taken from them by some invisible, unstoppable, uncaring force, which is a kind of biological vampire. So we read vampire stories to prepare, to imagine scenarios, to think, I would like to do this. I wouldn't want to try that. If I'm in my last days, this is who I want to talk to. This is how I want to behave. So I would take that and say, we're fascinated by stories of the plague because we're made of meat. We have hearts that pump blood. We have complicated internal chemistries, livers and gallbladders and kidneys that all have to continually function in the proper way. And if they don't, you find yourself one morning coughing up blood into the toilet. We know this is a possibility. We know this is a threat. Certainly after COVID, we know it better than we ever did. And so I think we're always going to be drawn to stories of pathogens running out of control because facing threatening pathogens is indeed part of the human condition. On the personal level, that's true. Do these apocalyptic stories also play on our communal fears of a societal breakdown? The stories of the apocalypse are by their nature, explorations at the end of the world. End of the world stories have tremendous power over us because we know this is something we will all have to face. Sooner or later, I'm gonna die, and then that will be the end of the world for me. Everything will be lost. All my friends, all my enemies, civilization, my internet connection, all gone in an instant. And you're going to face that too. And so I think that while we are fascinated with stories of social breakdown and the imminent apocalypse, at least in part, that's a way of simply wrestling with our own mortality, with our own understanding that sooner or later, the lights are off and the doors are all locked for all of us. You only get this little period of time. The world, civilization, and all its pleasures only exist for a short period of time for all of us. And it's about sort of adapting to that notion. The other thing I would say is societies have been breaking down all across the world. Societies have fallen into chaos again and again throughout history. It still happens. There are coups, there are plagues, there are earthquakes, there are tsunamis. There was a village on the east coast of Japan with shopping malls and churches and bookstores and playgrounds. And there was a huge tsunami and a tidal wave wiped it all out in the course of a few hours. Everyone who escaped alive lost everything. So we do have this desire to wrestle with uncomfortable possibilities, to prepare for the worst. And we do that by using our imagination to project ourselves into scenarios of threat and collapse. And that's the purpose of every apocalyptic story, to prepare for the very real possibility that the social functions we take for granted could be swept away. It's happened before and it will happen again. Is there a wish fulfillment aspect to some of these last man on earth stories? <laughs> I do think there is something about the idea of 
society collapsing and being left to fend for yourself that's a little bit exciting, a little bit fun, you know, no more trying to figure out how to pay my taxes online, no more with my Aunt Sally texting me about her gallbladder. It's just going to be me and my dog and my rifle and my cans of beans, and it's going to be awesome. So there is definitely a little bit of that uh, throughout all the apocalyptic scenarios going all the way back to Neville sitting in his 1950s ranch house, drinking his brandy and listening to uh, Sinatra on his, on his record player and knowing he was never going to have to pay for a record again. If he wanted one, he could just go to the record store and steal one. It wasn't like anyone was going to arrest him. What did you think of the latest adaptation of I Am Legend with Will Smith as Neville? It got a mixed reception. I mean, it's a Will Smith action film, you know? He, he's, you know, um, thrashing vampires for an hour and a half. What's wrong with that? I mean, that's like, you know, that's what I pay to see Will Smith do. After seeing so many low-budget apocalypse films, it was nice to see someone who could afford to create a realistic post-apocalyptic Manhattan. You know, we do love to see Times Square reduced to a smoking ruin. And I don't know why that is. Maybe a lot of us have just had a shared experience of New York City traffic. And so we just can't help wanting to see the vampires take over and the streets suddenly become desolate. I would say that I don't think you need to have a big budget to do a great end of the world story. London um, was reduced to a burning ruin in quarter mass in the pit. And their entire budget probably wouldn't pay for the craft service table on Will Smith's I Am Legend. But with a good script, good performances, and a little bit of indulgence from the audience, uh, you can still tell a pretty good story. This leads us nicely into talking about War of the Worlds. In Spielberg's version, the Martian war machines have been buried underground for millennia, just like the Martian ship in Quatermass in the Pit. I prefer War of the Worlds to Jurassic Park. I think it's a very underrated Spielberg picture. I think it's probably the most underrated Tom Cruise film. It's Boschian in its vision of worldwide horror. There is a moment, a peaceful morning, when a shaken Tom Cruise takes his family down to the riverside to find fresh water, and they both freeze on the banks of the river to watch one bloated corpse after another float by. That's like the whole film in a nutshell. Every time they think they've had to witness the worst, there's always something more terrible waiting around the next corner. There is a moment when an alien stalk, a sort of alien eyeball, goes hunting children in a basement. And it is like that moment when the velociraptor goes after the children in Jurassic Park. But in this version, Spielberg is playing for keeps. It's so much darker, so much more intense, and we have so much less faith that those kids are going to survive. I loved Spielberg's ambition in it. And I thought there was a film where they really had the budget to show collapse and um, catastrophe on an, the biggest of big canvases. I'm surprised more people don't talk about it today because it has a great look and the effects are terrific. The Martian death ray effects where people are zapped into dust and nothing's left but their clothes is great. We're used to Tom Cruise playing Ethan Hunt, playing a kind of unstoppable superhero. And I love something like War of the Worlds, which presents him as an intelligent and brave man 
who does not have any really extraordinary skills, just a will to try to save his loved ones. He surfs on desperation through the whole picture in a very convincing way. And I just don't think that that's a scenario we're used to seeing Tom Cruise in, which is one of the reasons why the picture is so effectively scary. We're thinking, oh my God, if Tom Cruise can't fight his way out of this, what am I going to do? Let's look at a different kind of apocalypse, the invasion of the body snatchers. <coughs> I got an alien pod in my throat. Don, boy, Donald Sutherland's been in some good horror films, huh? I mean, both versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers are terrifying, and these are both pictures that tap into our anxiety that the humans around us might not be really human that paranoid notion that exists in all of us. What if everyone around me is only pretending to be human? What if I'm the only real human being with thoughts and feelings and a past and everyone else is somehow artificial, you know, either a machine or a hologram or a plant with a person face stuck on it? Invasion of the Body Snatchers circles back to this fear that identity is fragile, that humanity is fragile, and could easily be subsumed by something else. And would we know? Would we know if we were in the company of something wearing a human skin like a coat, but that inside cared nothing for us? And there is something, and sometimes I wonder if it's a flaw in human beings, we are prone to accepting paranoid fantasies. There is some weakness in us that makes us willing to entertain paranoid possibilities that are deeply unlikely. Invasion of the Body Snatchers speaks to our willingness to accept paranoid fantasy. So does the QAnon theory that was so popular on Facebook. Both are about believing in a sort of paranoid delusion in which many of the people around you are actually secretly monsters. The line between reality and paranoid fantasy seems pretty thin these days. Horror films are fun when they take the kind of paranoid fantasies that skitter around our brains and say, but what if it was true? Reality, however, becomes a little less fun when we can't parse the difference between truth and paranoid fantasy. If you started a Facebook meme that said certain politicians were plants, they had been replaced by pod people, you know, and if this got the backing of Q, you know, I think a certain number of people would believe it. On a less serious note, any thoughts on Zombieland? So the biggest problem with zombie films at this point is the idea that anyone would be surprised by zombies. Zombies have been all over our pop culture now for 30 years. Everyone has a zombie apocalypse plan, and Zombieland is the first movie to sort of take that head on, to admit that this is a scenario that is almost a cliche at this point, and that everyone is prepared for it, and here are the rules you need to follow to keep you alive. It does have a hilarious Bill Murray cameo. It has a terrifically funny Woody Harrelson performance that's funny for two acts, and then absolutely heartbreaking in the last act. 
and is a zombie film that brings something new to the table, starting with a lot of laughs. I found a good apocalypse film for you. Maybe good is going too far, but important anyway. Uh, how familiar are you with Threads? It's deeply disturbing. It's got the most horrific ending. Mm-hmm. Threads imagines a Sheffield devastated by nuclear warfare, crushing everything that's beautiful and wiping out all hope, or basically pretty much like Sheffield without nuclear warfare. So we're doing a holiday horror episode. Uh, so what's the appeal of setting a horror film in a holiday like Christmas? We have Christmas rammed down our throat year after year. The day after Halloween, they start playing the goddamn Christmas music on the radio and in all the stores. It's exhausting. You feel like, you know, it's the holiday that swallows half a year. And I think it's natural to want to work out those aggressions against Christmas to start the war on Christmas, which I think the war on Christmas officially began with Joe Dante's Gremlins. And then, you know, was that, that tradition was proudly carried on in Krampus, which is a great Christmas horror film. Very funny and very scary. It's got evil gingerbread men marching across the kitchen to wipe out members of this fairly dysfunctional family. I understand the operating theory behind Christmas horror, and I've written some Christmas horror myself. It all goes back to that Lon Chaney quote. Lon Chaney once said, there's nothing funny about a clown at midnight. I get that, and I would say in the same sense, we all love hearing a Christmas carol on the radio when the snow is falling the day before Christmas. But when it's the middle of a hot summer and you're out hiking in the woods and you're lost, sweaty and bug-bitten, and a little scared that you're not going to find your way back to the car by night. And you're tramping along through the woods looking for some kind of landmark, some kind of sign. And you see a derelict old barn and all the windows are boarded over. And you hear warbling Christmas music from somewhere deep inside the barn. That is not heartwarming at all. And you will turn around and walk in the other direction as fast as your feet can carry you. So good horror is all about uncomfortable juxtapositions. It's about taking something like clowns or something like Christmas, something we love and find comforting, and then ruining it for everyone forever. Which is why Christmas horror pisses so many people off, right? Yeah, but that's, that's it is in the nature of horror fiction, horror cinema, to be a little bit like punk rock if you've failed to piss anyone off, you're probably doing it wrong. Did you see the Halloween 2018 remake or sequel or reboot, whatever it was? I saw the Halloween remake. I thought the scariest figures in the Halloween remake were podcasters, that the movie proves that true crime podcasters have now become so ubiquitous that we find them deeply unsettling. I did like the Halloween remake. I thought the opening sequences with Michael Myers in the Insane Asylum go right there with some of the most chilling stuff in any ha Halloween picture ever. That said, you know, I'm an old school guy and still prefer the two John Carpenter originals, the first film and the second film. 
because even to this day, to me, they still feel so fresh. But I admire the folks who made the new one for giving it their very best and trying to do something modern to sort of take that story and give it a little more of a Terminator spin with Jamie Lee Curtis as the Sarah Connor character. Speaking of sequels, tell me about the special place Romero's Dawn of the Dead holds in your life. I've seen George A. Romero's masterpiece Dawn of the Dead easily more than 20 times over the course of my life. I owned the board game, played the board game ceaselessly when I was a teenager. I knew the script almost by heart. I've read at least one book about the making of the picture. It is right there with Jaws as one of the artifacts of the 20th century that most fascinates me. George A. Romero and his aide-de-camp, Tom Savini, wanted to make the ultimate horror movie comic book. They wanted to do what George had done in Night of the Living Dead, but on a much bigger, redder canvas. And so they took four human survivors and planted them in a U.S. shopping mall and showed them fighting to create some tiny corner of civilization amid a horrifying apocalypse. And it was also, like all George's films, it was also a statement about how we live and what matters to us. There's this terrific moment in the picture when the zombies are wandering through the mall and two of the heroes, two guys who are ex-SWAT paratroopers are looking down upon them. And one of the SWAT guys says, why do they come here? And the other SWAT guy says, this place was important to them. That still chills me just faintly. When they wipe out a bunch of zombies and clear out the shopping mall. Our four human survivors are locked in the mall with all the riches of capitalist, late 20th century capitalist society. They're throwing fistfuls of money at each other, covering each other in furs and drinking all the wine. And there is something there. We love these characters. We care about them. We want them to live. But there is also something there about the haves shutting the doors on the have-nots, on the ill, on the doomed, and wallowing in material goods that is a little bit chilling and a little bit unsettling. And we know they aren't really safe there. Lately, the scene with the scientist in the TV station seems to have struck a chord with people for some reason. Yeah, it does open with one scientist saying, here's what we have to do to stay safe. While around him, civilization crumbles and no one listens. I, I can't imagine why that would speak to so many people nowadays. Now, you read a short story about Dawn of the Dead. So, weird piece of trivia about my personal history. When I was very little, I was a child actor. I had one part. I was cast in George A. Romero's Creep Show, um, which was written by my dad. I played a little kid who loves horror comics, and his abusive father takes his comics away. And so the kid gets even with a voodoo doll. 
I was on set for a week and it was in the early 1980s. It was a little independent picture made in Pittsburgh. And this was before a lot of the laws and rules about child labor in film existed. And so there was no onset teacher. There was no onset nanny. There was no sense that maybe I shouldn't be awake at two in the morning. There were no rules or regulations at all. And so they needed someone to look after me when I wasn't on film. And so they asked Tom Savini to be my nanny. And so Tom Savini, of course, is the ghoulish grandmaster of gross out gore. He did all the beheadings in Friday the 13th, and he did all the zombies in, he made the dead walk and Dawn of the Dead. And I hung out in his trailer for a week. He was my first rock star. I just thought he was so cool. I was just so unbelievably cool. You know, he had this leather jacket, motorcycle boots. He had these arched eyebrows like Spock from Star Trek. I spent a week watching him gruesomely disfigure movie stars and create grotesque monstrosities. By the time I left the set of Creepshow, I knew what I wanted to do for a living. I wanted to do what Tom Savini did. I wanted to kill people in memorable ways, and I wanted to come up with unforgettable creatures. And that is actually what I wound up doing in a way, only I wound up doing it on paper instead of with latex appliances. Creepshow turned out to be a pretty formative experience for me, and I always wanted to write about it. And at some point, in 2003, 2004, I decided to write about George Romero and Tom Savini, and I wrote a short story called Bobby Conroy Comes Back from the Dead, which is set on location at the Monroeville shopping mall during the filming of Dawn of the Dead, when George Romero famously paid locals $1 a day to be zombies in the picture. And I did that because I felt writing about Creepshow would be too close. And also at the time, no one, I was writing as Joe Hill and no one knew who my dad was. No one knew my dad was Stephen King. And I thought writing about Creepshow was too particular and might blow my pseudonym apart. And so to stay safe, to protect myself, I wrote about Dawn of the Dead instead. And uh, that short story is in 20th Century Ghosts, my first collection, and is actually the only non-horror story in the book. It's actually a sort of weird black romance um, about two all high school lovers sort of rekindling the flame while playing the undead on the set of Dawn of the Dead. Um, it was a lot of fun to write. It was like time travel. So, Joe, do you still get the same charge out of horror films and horror fiction that you used to? Oh, yeah. You know, I love the genre more than ever. I had this first moment when I was a little kid when Tom Savini took time out to basically be a nice guy and let me play with his gross toys and, you know, here I am, I'm almost 50, and I've written a bunch of horror novels, and some have been made into TV shows. AMC made Nosferatu into a TV show that went for a couple seasons and told the whole book. And look who was in it. Tom Savini jumped into a small part as uh, an evil figure named Old Snake. Um, and I got to, you know, I got to work with Tom on Lock and Key, which is based on my comic book and is a Netflix show. And it's been a real pleasure to sort of rekindle this friendship decades down the road from when we first met.
So last time we spoke, you recommended a couple of great new horror novels. Uh, what have you read lately that's impressed you? What have I read that's been really scary? That's a good question. Because I don't want to just sit here and pimp my father. I mean, the scariest book I've read in the last couple of years was The Outsider. That book is so scary, it just runs on rails. A great Jekyll and Hyde tale, a great doppelganger story. What else have I read that was scary that I really liked? I've really enjoyed the fiction of Paul Tremblay. He wrote a book called Head Full of Ghosts, which reimagines the exorcist for the reality TV era. So when uh, the young girl is possessed by a demon, the family does the obvious thing, which is not to call an exorcist, but to try to get a reality TV show going based on their daughter's torments. And it's very funny and very perceptive about celebrity culture and ultimately um, quite wrenching and tragic and, um, and moving. So Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay gets a definite recommend. Josh Mallerman has been exciting. Lauren Bukes wrote a book called The Shining Girls, which is not about the two girls who came out of the elevator in The Shining, but is instead about a serial killer who has a great getaway strategy. He kills women with terrific potential, women who could change the world, and then he returns to his apartment and jumps forward in time to escape the police officers who are pursuing him. So he uses his time travel machine to escape persecution. And that's a great story. Lauren is terrific. Awesome. So it's like an angry incel with a time machine? Yeah, he is something like that. Although he's sort of a more, he's almost a little bit like one of these remorseless archetypes, like the judge in Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Larger than life figure who almost views himself as the righteous hand of God. He's real scary and Lauren is real scary. She does terrific stuff. You know what was really good? There's a really great graphic novel by a woman named Emily Carroll called Through the Woods, which is a collection of 12 stories that she wrote and drew. Every one of them is haunting and beautiful. It would be terrific to see them animated. That would make a scary film. So Emily Carroll is, uh, you know, a terrific daydreamer of horror scenarios who's worth watching. Well, that's probably a good place to end. Well, it was good. Kurt, it was great talking to you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you, Joe. Are you working on anything now? I'm midway through a novel that I think is going pretty good. I'm scared, I'll blow it, but I'm always scared. And that was the very well-prepared Joe Hill. Join us next time for Jennifer Tilly. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayenga. Produced by Kurt Sayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut.